Films Podcast. I'm David Smith, and once again I'm joined by the Sirs, Jim Lamming and Alistair Yule. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hello there. Now they say all good things come to an end. Life, love, fortune, and our Hellraiser retrospective. In our packed double bill finale, we're going to talk you through the last of these movies, Revelations and Judgment. We also have an extra long interview with Gary J. Tunnicliffe about his time with the franchise, a guy who's worked on every entry since part three and directed Judgment. So Gary J. Tunnicliffe is going to be chatting to us. But hey, before we get to all that, I want to ask you guys what else they've been watching. So let's start with yourself, Jim. Uh, most recently, I went to see the new Ghostbusters film, uh, hmm. Afterlife. Uh, it was all right. That's <laughs> <laughs> the impression I'm getting from reviews. It seems to be a combination of really shite reviews and really positive ones. Yeah, it kind of... At, at first, it felt like it was riffing on the old-style 80s kids on an adventure, uh, set in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Even the music sounds like it's ripping off John Williams half the time. And that side of things is actually pretty nice. I quite like the characters they've introduced and you know, the sort of adventures they get in them. But then they have to go in and shoehorn the Ghostbusters nostalgia, references, fan service, everything you can think of, Funko Pops probably. It just gets thrown in and they're seeing what sticks and it really, really kind of dampened the experience for them. Uh, overall, it's a fun film, but there's just far too much pandering going on. I mean, not on the same level as like Rise of Skywalker or anything, but it's still just, you, you get it, it's a Ghostbusters film. So <laughs> can we just get on with these characters rather than the ones we know from, you know, days of yore. That's kind of a shame to hear that, because I was looking forward to seeing the new Ghostbusters, because I've always enjoyed the classic <laughs> ones. But it really looks like this film is one that, judging by the reviews, is one that it either lives or dies by the nostalgia, which I understand it has in bucket loads. I, I guess it depends on how much you can stomach <laughs> whether you say it lives or dies by it. I mean, some of it is quite nice and, you know, a, a nice little love letter, I suppose, for the yeah. original film. But some of it just feels like you're being force-fed it. <laughs> so they go a bit overboard, do they? Yeah. It, it seems it's got that kid from Stranger Things in it, which seems like yeah. quite self-conscious casting. Unless, unless they hired that kid for nostalgia for Stranger Things. <laughs> quite possibly. I mean, like it's popular, <laughs> isn't it? But to be fair, he's he's got a good character. He's pretty interesting, and he holds his own anyway. So you know, mm. regardless of what he's been in before. As I say, the, the new characters in this film are actually pretty good. I enjoy watching them. It's just when they try and mimic the mm, other films, yeah. pay you know too much fan service, it just gets a bit much. But other than that, you know, it's quite quite entertaining. I did enjoy it overall. Just you know, it's got a bit Ready Player One at times. So. Mm. <laughs> I'd imagine with just like the Ecto One and like the Ghost Traps, the Proton Packs that. That would have been enough. nostalgia would have yeah. been built in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like you've all, your nostalgia's built into this already. And, and, and it doesn't spend mm. too long with the kids, you know, discovering what uh -huh. they are, because conveniently everything's on YouTube these days, so they can see what they did back in, you know, yeah. 30 years ago when oh, it all that's happened. That's quite a nice touch, actually. Uh, I like that you've been finding archive footage of the original uh, series. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, like, nothing's really... To spend too long on 
stuff we already know. So it, it moves along quite, mm. you know, at quite a decent pace. But yeah, just as I say, too, too much fan service. I always love the decision that they went with uh, a lot of children actors in this film. Because I always remember from Ghostbusters 2, Egon explicitly said a proton pack is not a toy. <laughs> I wonder, because I guess it's just that nostalgia thing again, you know, because there'll be a certain audience who will have played at Ghostbusters when they were kids, right? And I suppose mm-hmm. that's maybe what we're tapping into. But I think also you immediately create a good sense of peril by having kids as being your main characters, particularly if you have good young uh, child stars as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if these are adults, it, it wouldn't uh, hit as many mm. notes as it did. You know, but that, that, that's part of the draw, as I say, it you know, also harks back to your 80s kids' adventure films and you've got the Stranger Things connection and so on. So it's, yeah, that side of thing was actually done really well and that's what I enjoyed most about it. But, you know, uh, I don't want to say any more because I don't want to ruin it as it's still relatively new. Uh, so also I've been watching, you know, Tis the Season, uh, Krampus. Uh, which I think was from about 2015, Mm. of uh, Adam Scott and Tony Collette. That's a great film, I love it. It it is, uh, to generalise, it's uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation with monsters in it. And it's so funny. It's very, very good. Uh, Occasionally, well, maybe not scary, but some of the monster designs in it are fantastic. Like that horrible Jack-in-the-box-esque creature yeah, where the snake the, thing. The sack yeah. Yeah. <laughs> digests the kids whole it's so funny and yeah the, the whole cast in it are in an absolute ball and you can see it and it moves along very swiftly you've got your darker bits your funnier bits it's just very good and it's become a bit of a staple in in our house at christmas <laughs> yeah. like scaring the kids with it yeah, guys, we're not going to be doing a list of Christmas horrors at the end just because uh, we have a, a different rank, a ranking thing <laughs> planned. But uh, what what Christmas horrors do you guys like? Because this would be one of them. Krampus is pretty cool. Like Black Christmas, the original one was a decent decent entry. Uh, what was that one that had Shatner uh, Christmas horror tale or something? That that was quite cool. It was a nice little anthology anthology film. You know, I have watched a few over the years, but it's telling how good they are as I can't remember pretty much 99% of them. Uh, I think one of them I'd seen was Silent Night, Deadly Night. Mm. And that was a pretty terrible slasher, if I remember. But yeah, again, going back a few years. You remember the, uh, the second the second Silent Night, Deadly Night? It's the one that's got garbage day. I, I've seen the memes, but not the actual film. <laughs> <laughs> um, does Jaws the Revenge count? <laughs> I want to say no, but it probably does. Uh, we are still going to do a Jaws episode at some point. Uh, the Lodge, I think. I think the Lodge was set at Christmas. I can't remember that no. one. Uh, anyway, uh, rather than rather than turn this into uh, turn this into a long look at look at Christmas horrors, what, have you been watching anything else? Oh, better watch out. That's another good one. What, what, check out better watch out, everyone. Really dark, really funny. I recorded that last year and never got around to watching. <laughs> I'll have to see if it's still on the planet. Um, The only other thing I've watched, and I'm just going to mention it because uh, it taps into nostalgia again for people our age, was 8-Bit Christmas. Uh, I don't know if you've seen A Christmas Story before, which is someone recounting a Christmas from 30 years ago and all the daft things and silly things that happened whilst also, you know, tapping into that nostalgic feeling of Christmas when you're a kid. 
it's basically that, only instead of the kid wanting an air rifle, he wants a Nintendo Entertainment System. And has to, you know, sweet talk the parents, the school teachers, etc. into, you know, why this is a good idea. The things they get up to to try and convince the parents or even try and raise the money for it was all quite, quite good fun. But, yeah, it kind of falls on its ass towards the end because there's only so much you can do with a film about wanting a Nintendo before the kid actually gets one. And I feel the journey was basically... With your own hard work and determination, you can get what you need. And yeah, it's like, that's not what we want to hear. <laughs> I've heard it's got a bit of tension to it between like this sort of boomer idea of, hey, you know, get out and have fresh air and stuff like that, you know, damn kids and electronics, whilst at yeah. the same time celebrating the kid getting his electronics. <laughs> I think what it is, is basically appreciate what you get given. You know, not everyone can get get what they want. Uh, in in the end, like sorry to spoil it, but the, the kid gets a treehouse instead of a Nintendo. So, oh. like, to be fair, it's a pretty impressive one. I would have lost my shit if I got that for Christmas. I can tell you that. But uh, yeah, and then he he manages to get his nez by getting a job. So. <laughs> <laughs> we earlier, fuck's sake. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, so, um, bit of a cop out, but it was it was pretty decent. Kind kind of Christmas smolts. Stuff, yeah. Be grateful for what you get. That's a yeah. message for uh, it's a message for a person I gave a secret Santa to for Horkill Film Secret Santa. <laughs> <laughs> On a totally unrelated topic, Alistair, what have you been watching? Well, I was in the cinema recently and I thought I would give the new Spider Man No Way Home uh, a shot. And oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you spoil this one, if you spoil this one, so we, will, <laughs> we will shoot you down and break social uh, distancing. Well, first of all, before you came at me with those threats, I wasn't going to. Um, the the film was really, really good. Um, well, it's not a spoiler because it was in all the trailers. It was obviously uh, Alfred Molino's Dr. Octopus comes back. And he's perhaps outside of the Tom Holland Spider-Man films, I think he was my favourite villain. And it was absolute joy to see him back in action. Um, there's This film was certainly... It's it's an Avengers, it's an event film, but without the Avengers of the title. There's so much that happens in it. So I'd say to anyone, go see this in the cinema, because that's the experience. And what I really, on such rare occasions during the film, like there's a few occasions where people got up and applauded. Oh, no. And <laughs> there's been occasions as well where twice during the film uh, like there's a lot of people in the audience crying and it was actually i quite enjoyed being part of a crowd that was reacting to the film that way it was uh it was a real joy I enjoyed it i won't get to see it till boxing day because waiting for covid to leave my system fully but i think the two spider-man films have both been brilliant yeah um, go out with covid will like- gun you down <laughs> Absolutely, and, and and rightfully so. I'll be the, the guy spreading Omicron in the middle, the middle of city world for, so I can get my kicks. Um, yeah, I think both the two Spider-Man ones we've had thus far have been excellent. And, uh, you know, I mean, while I wasn't hugely enamoured with uh, Shang-Chi and didn't watch Eternals, this one I just I thought all the marketing's been on point. You know, uh, the character is really good. 
the the fact we're bringing back the previous Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man villains so far. You know, it's just there's something about this that look, that looks like a real event movie, especially after Endgame, eh? Because like you're like, how are we going to top mm-hmm. this? And they go, oh well, I'll tell you what, we're going to unite films from a period of like. 30 years or something you know oh they did so well in this they they really really did well um and what i'll say about the tom holland ones is that marvel's known for not having great villains and with spider-man sort of uniquely has stood out in this instance because I mean, he's had great villains mysterio and vulture mm. were fantastic villains and it was great because they've not because they didn't use Dr. Octopus or anyone like that and we brought back you know the original it that really added something to this film as well the villains in this Spider-Man trilogy so far have been excellent and I believe that uh, Tom Holland's tenure as Spider-Man is uh, not over yet he's he's still young he could probably go for another 15 years I believe and especially because of how young he looks as well mm-hmm. um, I believe with him he's got some sequels lined up with Sony Is that, am I right in thinking we're finally going to do the, the crossover with Venom which was heavily implied by the most recent Venom film most likely mm-hmm. in fact I'd be surprised if they didn't uh, anyway have you been watching anything else sir another one with uh, an animal in the title not a spider this time but a squid uh, Squid Game. So I've been checking that out and uh, really thoroughly enjoyed that. I think South Korea needs to do more uh, more entertainment because they told us a solid story. And I just, at the end of every episode, I was like, you know what, just one more. And it ended up being quite a binge. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's really good. I uh, I didn't particularly like the finale for reasons that I'm not going to go into here for anyone who hasn't yet seen it but i think the journey to get there was often just outstanding the episode of the marbles was my personal mm-hmm. standout yeah, like that really that, got yeah. the like there's so much emotion to that uh to that one it was a real example of kind of less is more when it came to the game you know the tug of war episodes like it looked it looked fantastic i thought the social yeah. commentary was really well woven in with the exception of when they brought in the British people. I thought that was a little bit too uh, a little bit too camp and vaguely homophobic to work. But I thought that the uh, but I I I, I yeah. thought that the story it's telling tell overall was excellent. Probably gonna be a second season. I given its success, I'd be incredibly surprised if it wasn't and it does set something up quite nicely. It does. Um, I think it'll be a couple of years waiting for it. Uh, the the guy who wrote uh, wrote and I believe he directed it as well said that um, he wasn't planning a second one. He was so busy on this one, he just wanted to get through it. But he's had all sorts of offers now, and he thinks, yeah, I might do another one. So I think there could be a Squid Game, but it might be a couple of years. Uh, Jim, have you watched Squid Game yet? Uh, the only Squid Game I've experienced is Splatoon 2, so no, not yet. Right, now I'm going to tell you guys what I was watching. I watched The Deep House, which... I- believe was discussed a few weeks ago by Ross. So this is by Alexandra Bastillo and uh, Julian Moray. They're the French duo who made Inside. As per everything they've done since that movie, like Leatherface, Livid, and Among the Living, they've got some really good ideas here, but it just doesn't quite work. This film's basically grave encounters, but under the water. And uh, it's 
got some really good sets. Like visually, it's really impressive. But as the team behind Thunderball learned decades ago, if you do most of the film under the water, then it means all the action is really, really slow. The uh, lore of it is using about this kind of haunted mansion in the middle of the uh, middle of the lake. It's relatively shallow, pun partially intended. Although there are still a few jump scares. The plot points are all right. They're relatively predictable, but hey, the ending's quite bold. Worth watching. Probably not necessarily worth paying for. I'd wait till it comes out for free on Prime or on Shudder. And speaking of Shudder, the boy behind the door. Either of you guys seen this one? No, um, unfortunately still not a Shudder subscriber yet. Oh, Sh- Shudder's got quite good in the last few years. You know, when Shudder first began and we're like, oh, the, the Ring versus the Grudge, this will be our our like big flagship film. And you're like, eh. But it, it's found its own voice. There's a lot of really good originals and a lot of films from all around the world. Now, for this one, you've got a decent premise for a short but it feels a bit like it's been dragged out to be a feature-length film. It's basically a cat-and-mouse movie for 90 minutes of uh, two kids trying to uh, outsmart a couple of adults. Now, to be fair, it never loses its intensity. There's not really enough plot or enough layers to the characters to really justify the 90-minute running time. It's always about more content rather than what happens next, because you could write down the plot points of this on the back of your hand. The baddies are quite nondescript. They don't really have any motivation. Still, we've got a really decent cast. We've got a really decent setting. So it's definitely worth a watch, particularly if it's uh, late night and you're sat alone. And uh, finally, with the new Matrix film coming out, decided to rewatch the original trilogy. Now, I'm not going to comment on them just in case we decide to uh, do uh, a Matrix episode in the next month or two, but I also decided to watch Wachowski's Cloud Atlas. You guys seen Cloud Atlas yet? Yes, it's fantastic. Absolutely Absolutely. incredible. Absolutely, yeah. Fucking glad glad you like it. Like, I tried the book a few years back. I just find it a bit impenetrable, a little bit, uh, I don't know, bit irritating to be honest yeah i've got the book too and it's sat on my shelf for like three years so i'm yet to read it but it's one of those things where i wanted to read the book before watching the film the thing with the book is it changes its writing style for every uh for every timeline and it does for timelines where you get half of one and then goes into the next half of that one half of that one half of that one uh like a russian doll system a full story for the second half of each of the stories so that the one that opens and the one that closes, you're seeing the ending hundreds of pages apart. The problem I had with this was the narrative voice for the first couple of sto- a couple of stories was so unappealing. But with the movie, the movie's uh, the, the movie kind of goes through time uh, uh, like just left, right, and center. You know, it jumps between the eras quite freely, and. Um, for me, this is really good for getting across how all these stories are interlinked. It means that the stories are building up momentum at the same time. We're getting the emotional climaxes of each coming at the same time. And God, this movie has moments of absolute cinematic transcendence. The message might be a little bit generic, but the performances, the visuals, the score. Oh, God, it just inspires fucking awe. Like, I loved this film. I strongly recommend it. Jim, I'm glad you liked it too. And Alistair. You give up on the book, just watch it. Watch All right. <laughs> well, whilst we're on the, the, the subject of the Wachowskis, 
I had been having a bit of a catch-up myself and accidentally caught Speed Racer the other day as well. Oh, is it any good? Yes. <laughs> it's. Uh, heard it was good. It's terrible as well. It's <laughs> it's like a sugar rush, and that's probably the best way to describe it. It's so hyperactive. It's it's literally a live-action anime, and it's filmed that way. But it's so much fun. It's it's. It's just left me breathless, and I might watch it again soon. Actually, I really enjoyed it. I mean, they have a really good visual style. I've never seen, um, never seen Jupiter Ascending yet. No, that's one I haven't actually caught yet as well. Uh, me neither, but I have read a few reviews on it, and from what I understand, it is another film with amazing visuals, but a bit of a bizarre story. Anyways, maybe we'll have a Wachowski's one coming up in the next wee bit, folks. Uh, last film... Oh, no, no, that was, that was all the films that I've got. That's all the films let's go talk oh, about. Oh, David, you're putting off that the was... inevitable here. I am, I am. Why is he delaying the beginning of this episode? <laughs> uh, um, actually, one thing, I, one other thing I've been, I've been watching, I uh, checked out, and this is not horror, but I've got the Disney Channel, so I decided to check out Will Smith's new documentary, uh, the Welcome to the World one. I tell you what, Really, really cool. This is uh, Darren Aronofsky, is the director of it, who, of course, we know for Requiem for Dream and uh, Black Swan, among numerous other movies. And uh, just the absolute epic scale. You know, Will Smith is uh, is a decent enough host, very charismatic, as we'd reasonably expect. And while some of the black and white footage of him reflecting upon, uh, upon the wonder of nature is a little bit pretentious at the same time it's uh, it's a great way to witter away a few hours and unbelievable what you're seeing visuals of this magnitude events of this scale unfolding on your tv screen you know so uh good stuff disney anyway i've mentioned already that one of the reasons we've been a little bit delayed of this episode is i got covid now i'm all better now but i have lost some of my taste so Let's see if this has changed the way that I view the first film, Hellraiser Revelations. Some movies are passion projects. Others take years to make. Revelations was written in three days and made across a period of three weeks so Dimension could keep the legal rights. And it shows. Folks, this may be the first film since the fourth to have definitely begun its life as a Hellraiser flick, but that doesn't make it a labour of love. Rather, this film is 100% pure product. It's there to be consumed. It's not necessarily there to be enjoyed. Still, at just 75 minutes, including an oddly long introduction screen and the world's slowest credits, at least it doesn't outstay its welcome. Right, Alistair? No. It outstays its welcome. (laughs) I mean, where do we even begin with this one? I'll just say it. This movie needs an enema. Even with the Rick Bota films, a highlight of those movies was Doug Bradley's Pinhead. He'd come in, say something sharp and witty, and then the hero would wake up. In this one, we have a new... Because this is the first time that we don't have Doug Bradley for the role of Pinhead. So it's played by someone else, who is also, I've since found out, was dubbed. Now, 
Wait, the... that voice was added as a choice. Uh-huh. Fuck me. Like that, that, that the voice you've given Pinhead is absolutely terrible. It's so mild. Almost it just kind of sounds like a cartoon pervert. Like I was I, oh, I was gonna say it sounds like someone with COVID. <laughs> it's um as long no, as it's, it's not me. I know. <laughs> and he says the same thing about pain and suffering and easily the worst parts of this film are the pinhead sections because it is such a climb down from the quality that we would have with Doug Bradley. It's like drinking fine wine and then I don't know, going to an inferior cider after that. There's a lot wrong with this film. And I don't know if either of you have heard of the uh, sort of equation where you get, there's like three aspects to movie making and you can only ever get two of them. And what they are is you can make a film quick or you can throw a lot of money at a film and it can be expensive. But neither of those things will make it good. But in order for a film to get good, you either have to take your time with it or you have to throw a lot of money in it. You know, this is that sort of triangle where you can never quite get all three. Now, with this film, it was certainly quick and it was certainly very cheap. Great philosopher Meatloaf once said, two out of three ain't bad. I beg to differ. This film is so bad, it neutralizes the other two. It ex- exists purely so that uh, Dimension Films could retain the rights for the Hellraiser property and allow them time to work on the reboot, which I believe was in development hell for at least a decade. What did you think of this one, Jim? Were you a fan? It was like a fan-made movie. Something you'd stumble on YouTube with about six views. And even then, I'd probably say it was worse. (laughs) Because, you know, with a fan movie, they'd at least try and pay it the due respect that it deserves. But (laughs) going back to the pinhead, I I know Doug Bradley's performance is iconic. You're never going to be able to 100% replicate that. But the way they did it was so fucking weird. I... Why did they dub over that guy? I mean, I, it must have been terrible for them to have done another voiceover to the guy playing Pinhead, for him to sound like a cartoon enemy out of mm. Futurama or something. I, that, that's all I could think of when he was talking. You know, it's like something Matt Groening had conjured up. Uh, just, yeah, it just you can tell it was made on the cheap, on the quick, just to keep the rights in in house because they've just taken loads of ideas from the original maybe two or three films thrown them together added some entitled californians to the mix and (laughs) seen what sticks like at at first when it started i was like oh god it's a found footage film this is going to be terrible but it turned out that was only the first five minutes but it was still terrible and like it's just a mess and even then like the the fan service they think they're paying is completely inaccurate and like goes against everything that's come prior to this point anyway for example the uh one of the characters uh being released from hell through the mattress obviously a call back to hellraiser 2 but he didn't die on that mattress, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> it's a completely different room. <laughs> I didn't even spot that. But to touch on that scene, um, I spotted a different mistake because I always found it odd in the initial films where the either when Julia comes back or when Frank comes back, they put fingers on the back of the neck 
and then you hear the straw sound effect. Yes. That's them consuming the blood. This guy in this film doesn't do that. He goes like, he's Boris Karloff. He's the vampire. He's going straight into biting the back of the neck. And I'm like, that's not how it's done, mate. <laughs> I've got to slightly, slightly defend this film. Now, when I say slightly defend this film, this is, I'd say, the second worst of the series after, uh, after Hellworld. I think the main thing this has going for it is at least was an attempt to return Hellraiser to its roots. We have his skin suits again. We have a resurrection on a mattress. Admittedly, it, as you said, doesn't really make any sense. But I like that the basic premise brings it back to a small, intimate family dynamic. Heck, we can't get help because the Cenobites seem to have... Uh, stolen their cars and also blocked the home but at least this kind of it's crazy this kind of focus on just one location for most of it I generally quite liked that I mean maybe it's because the family scenes were a really welcome contrast to those two wankers hanging around Tijuana doesn't matter how many times you guys say it's Tijuana we know you're shooting that in, in fucking California right but um I just find those characters so unappealing Yeah, that the family bits, the two families who get drunk and shout at each other, I just thought there's at least a, a potential here. There's an interesting situation here. You know, families that are both, we don't really feel their grief, partly because we don't like the two characters. And secondly, because we're seeing the characters for like almost half the movie, which we really shouldn't. There's way too much of the fine footage section. But still, at the same time, there's still something quite nice about... Um, Exploring a dynamic of here's a couple of families, they share their grief meeting up at the same time every year, but they really struggle to talk about the issue. Admittedly, it's quite unintentionally funny when uh, this girl, uh, Sophie, uh, Emma, a name I really should remember, um, when Emma uh, is like, I want to talk about it. So they start talking about it, then she immediately fucks off out of the room <laughs> to stay by herself. It's like, what? Although, although, one question I got for you guys, right? All right. I've got many questions for you guys, but one question I've got for you guys here. How the fuck do they have either the box or the footage? Uh, that's many. There's many questions in this film that they I would not answer. A private eye, apparently. What, you went down, went down to, a, what, like a, a, a toilet? And then find it and, and find there? Here's yeah. the question for you. How did, when the two, the two boys, those two wankers, are being all leery, and they're in the strip club, right? And there's a bouncer at the strip club. How on earth did the hobo with the box manage to get into that establishment to try and sell them the box? And that scene went on way too long. Yeah. I was just glad to see to see the uh, the vagrant, I believe he's officially referring mm-hmm. to, but we could does a combo hobo, I'm cool with that too. Um, the, uh, when that guy was around... I like that he was kind of a hype man again for the box. He's like, ah, oh, this fucking box. And you open this box, so you're not even going to believe the things that come out. He has a few nice little lines that almost recall the original. And we do have a couple of those, like the whole, uh, I don't want the shirt off your back line. There's a few bits that could come from the that, first. That I liked. That I did. I That one line I did like. It's not the shirt off your back I want. And that's being spoken by a, a headless, sorry, a skinless man, I should say. <laughs> But he's also doing the. Um, does he say "come to daddy"? I think he does. Oh yeah, I think there's a lot of 
one dialogue one, references. Yeah, one, one of them was saying, you know, pain and pleasure, indivisible. I mean, we're just directly quoting the original film here. And I kind of had flashbacks to Doug Bradley's Pinhead and Hellraiser Bloodline, where he says, how dare you use that word? Oh, that's a line that's going to return in Hellraiser Judgment. I just realized it. Anyway, um, you know, how dare you use that word? They use that when he mentions uh, mm-hmm. suffering. Anyway, we'll come to Hellraiser Judgment later. But uh, did you notice the uh, vagrant? He, he appears in two scenes and changes his voice for the second one. They probably forgot to dub the other one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes me wonder if, it, if they go, okay, I can't remember if the voice I'm meant to use, but we go, but we shot that scene two days ago. <laughs> one one thing that gets me, I, I, I agree with you, David, on the fact that the family aspect of it is probably the stronger part of the film. But they're arguing about why the boys left in the first place. Now, I know we're showing this at the beginning, but the mother has also watched the videos we've watched. So they're fully aware, surely, at this point, <laughs> of what they're arguing about. Can't wait to give her dicks wet as you say that. Well, like one of the lads is uh, told they're going to Disneyland while the, you know, obviously the ne'er-do-well of the pair decides they're going to Mexico instead. So, like, they were just going to get pissed up and laid so that's pretty evident on the video your private investigator has handed you yet we're getting an entire scene discussing their motives <laughs> I, like, I like their use of uh, private investigator it's not a plot hole it's a private investigator <laughs> <laughs> to, to be fair though right with the tapes we're watching it's weird because the found footage section isn't all shot in found footage it jumps between found footage and non-found yeah. footage, including the murder scene that the mum watches, which is not <laughs> shot in found footage, but then it comes to her looking at the video like, <gasps> like that. <laughs> Number one thing I'd do in crimes, be sure to film them <laughs> and leave them where a private <laughs> investigator can find. Hey, at least it's not leaving it to ITV News to find. <laughs> Topical. Uh, anyway, uh, so... As far as the only other things I particularly liked about this film, some of the kill scenes look quite nice. The bit where he's murdering the uh, sex worker with the box look good. The bit where we see Nico's body, makeup effects look pretty banging. Mm. Yeah, the well, you got to hand it to him with that. You know. <laughs> I mean, I also thought the, the twist that Stephen is actually Nico... Um, it brings in serious questions about why his sister, uh, like, you know, you go look at him, yeah. yes. him, try, him trying to flirt with his sister. From Nico's perspective as Stephen, it makes sense. It doesn't make any sense from her perspective why she makes out with him. It's like no. the Amityville 2 problem. But I thought that twist was at least unexpected. It's just, it doesn't matter because we don't like Stephen either. I'm sorry, but it's unexpected in the way that the guy shooting himself in the head in Hellraiser 6 was unexpected. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, once he started uh, grabbing her tits, uh, that was pretty obvious it wasn't her brother. I mean, it was always <laughs> suspect anyway due to the fact he keeps having these flashes to her brother being turned into Pinhead Mark II uh, <laughs> for some reason. That that was like, very Austin Powers mini-me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's possibly the worst Cenobite of all. <laughs> but, I mean, like... 
the soup was a terrible icebreaker. I'll have some soup. I've just had an experience from hell. And yeah, that's the yeah. one thing you get offered. You're in fucking California. Yeah. I, I don't know. I quite, I quite liked uh, her trying to do the uh, the sexy soup sipping. Like, <laughs> or was it him sorry, doing the sexy soup sipping? Yeah, it was just, it was just strange. The, um, it's weird how the box also acted as a... Uh, uh, like it, it, it was, get, people were getting the rocks off of that box. Yeah, not for DCI. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah like like she's holding, she's uh, got the box. The uh, Nico's dad's got the box, and they're like, ooh, like exchanging flirtatious little glances with each other. Yeah, I think it was just trying to shoehorn in some of the eroticism from the original films as well. Mm. Did she? Did she balls up the opening of the box? Because she's out by the pool, and she half opens the box. Then Nico turns up. He exposits very slowly and very breathily because he's out of his mind, but still able to recall the information he needs to tell them right then. It's a terrible scene. And then once he's finished talking, he faints. Now, I don't think she actually finishes with it until they're yeah, all she, in the living room. She's kind room. of opening it, but then doesn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the guy who played Stephen, I think, was by far the best member of the cast, especially the bit where he's playing Nico playing Stephen. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. Uh, that whole bit at the end, he brings in more threat than all of the shite Cenobites combined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he didn't do half bad, but there's a lot of sort of bad acting in that film mm. because the film was shot so quickly. I'd be surprised if those scenes weren't all first takes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. And especially when you've got, like, the really long found footage scene at the intro, where it goes yeah. on for, like, three or four minutes of them talking as we just get this blurry, rapidly shot mess, which I assume was, all right, think... well, we can... Yeah, but, like, we can basically take up 5% of the film in this one shot, so let's just get it right, guys. <laughs> and this went, that'll do. Do you know the... I think one of my real issues with the film is that there are no good sequences like you can go to and you think that'll be fun to watch, that'll be fun to watch. Like the entire film is a chore. Now, there is a good idea there. With the two families meeting up, they've both lost the son and there's like issues, unresolved issues between the two. It reminds me like the film Carnage from 2011. And it was a Roman Polanski one starring Jodie Foster and Kate Winslet. John C. Riley and Christoph Waltz. And was, it's just those four characters in a room, in a living room, chatting for an hour and a half about one of their sons is bullying the other one. And it's a really good film. It's a really, really good film. There seems to be an effort to make that in this film, but they just couldn't do it on any level. Maybe it was on TV while they were writing the script. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Oh, this reminds me, you guys know who the director of this movie was? Because I can tell you, it's Victor Garcia, who's done the following movies. Mirrors Part 2, which has one pretty cool kill sequence in it, gotta be honest. Mirrors 2, Return to the House on Haunted Hill, and the 30 Days of Night TV series. So basically, if you want someone to reboot your series, this is your guy. <laughs> Certainly seems that way. I also want to point out, because this is one of my rants I have for a while about this film Revelations. This is obviously Hellraiser Revelations and you get the film Silent Hill 
2, Revelations. And I believe Candyman 2 was also, was that 2 or 3 that was Revelations? No, Candyman 2 was Farewell to the Flesh, and number 3 was Day of the Dead. So I think you've lost your train of thought. <laughs> no, it's just because it was, I think David was telling me, I would tell David this list and he would remind Born me that one of the had Candyman, revelations. I was like, Children of the Corn, was that? Okay. Um, basically, what I'm, where I'm going with this is it would be really nice if one of these films titled Revelations actually had a revelation in the film. Because these, <laughs> these films with revelations are just slapped onto films that, they're, they're, oh, first of all, they're all sequels. And they're always inferior sequels at that. I mean, prove me wrong, you know? Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I mean, uh, with the Children of the Corn films, of course, we have a bit of a uh, recurring relationship between these series since they were, these films tend to be made at the same time because they're trying to keep the rights, which are purchased mm-hmm. the same year. So I believe when Hellraiser Revelations came out, I think that was uh, Children of the Corn had just done a Revelations. It was now doing a Genesis. Uh-huh. But they were doing Children of the Corn 8, the one which features footage from Bad Boys Part Two. <laughs> I think I think Hellraiser Revelation is going to use footage from her Bad Boys Two. <laughs> At least it would have thematically linked. Quick wee comment about the setting of this. The house itself, I like that it's kind of isolated and again, especially when you're like, oh, by the way, you've uh, you've lost your cars and your phone signal because of the Cenobites, right? Um, but I still like that it kind of feels in the middle of nowhere. Also, I guess when they're using the kind of middle class, very sort of wealthy looking place, it stands as a nice kind of contrast to the sins which are supposed to be being uh, coming in the revelations, which we we don't really. With Mexico, which is again not really Mexico, I can't, don't imagine the tourist board to be particularly happy. It makes Mexico look absolutely shit. It's just really violent and sleazy, and you can uh, shag and then kill someone in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, nobody wakes you up or like gets the police or anything. Even that, or maybe everyone's just constipated there, except for them. I don't know, but. Uh, that that just didn't sit well with me at all. Yeah, no, it, doesn't, it doesn't paint it in a good light. It's terrible, <laughs> really. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I can contribute to that. Um, regarding the family drama stuff, I think a problem we have here, a lot of it's from the acting. Um, I think, the, I don't know if this is the script or just the way that the script is edited, but it doesn't really help this. Because all the emotions go from almost complete apathy to really, really melodramatic. Yeah. Like, you've yeah. got the family just like, yeah, our kids are gone. You're like, oh, that's a shame. Right? And then they're like, our fucking kids are gone. <laughs> right? Like, you know, it just goes from this sort of not even giving a shit to, like, characters screaming at each other. The car's going. It's in motion. But there's two hands fighting over the joystick. Over <laughs> the gear stick, sorry. Like I wonder if it's that sort of uh, you know uh, big emotions are uh, are good acting sort of school of thought or something. She see in kind of amdram because there's a bit of an amateur feel to most of the cast here. Mm, uh, yeah, there's an amateur feel to the uh, Cenobites as well. <laughs> oh, they were really half-assed in this one, where they really poor imitations of what we've had before. Yeah. Yeah. Most of it just looks like fairly normal clothing, but with a different mask on top, you know, and like, uh, mm. you can probably buy half of that from like your local uh, Hot Topic or something. I don't, know, I don't know if Hot Topic still exists, but uh, whatever the equivalent is. <laughs> Cenobite <laughs> Topic. 
<laughs> I said about topic. Um, but like a lot of it just looks like in the bad Halloween costumes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, and Pinhead being the worst, just. <laughs> uh, there are no words, are there, really? I mean, <laughs> apparently, the guy had actually a larger head, so they had to stretch uh, the Pinhead makeup over him, which has the unfortunate effect of making them look like the bobblehead version of Pinhead. <laughs> I think the like the, the makeup on it just doesn't on him just doesn't look very good no. either because like the original one has this kind of tension between someone that looks quite striking and these rel- these quite like don't be wrong he's got nails stuck in his head but they're thin nails whereas here we're trying to go for a, a more clearly violent looking aesthetic which kind of undermines the ethos until this point which is always something that's both beautiful and hideous. It kind of makes me think of when someone goes scuba diving, you're wearing that wetsuit, but you fart in the wetsuit, and then there's this uneven layer bobbing all about. <laughs> Pinhead, uh, the head of Pinhead in Hellraiser Revelations, it, 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 I mean, he is, he looks like, he reminds me of a brain fart. And the way that hell in it is just like this very blue-looking room. <laughs> I mean, fair to you, yeah. the entire soul's back. That was cool, right? So the Tower of Souls, again, not seen that since, what, number number three, I think? Number three, but I kind of oh, feel it was number five, cheaply, number five, sorry. cheaply used. When was it in Pillar of Souls? Ah, that's right, it, it did. Where, yeah, it with did. the kids on, yep. kid on it. I remember. Aye. And they froze. Yeah, uh, I think another big problem with this is, right, the characters, Nico and Steven, in the first one, we get Julia's conflict because you're, you're going, you know what, I... Uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to fuck Larry either, right? <laughs> That's your conflict. Um, because there's, there's something kind of animalistic about Frank. We see the idea of, like, two different types of relationship here. The idea of, like, the boring settle-down one or, like, so, or like her kind of reliving, maybe maybe part of it's about reliving her youth or something, but we get the conflict of her wanting to go into this much more physical type of relationship with uh, Frank. In this one, the two characters are both dicks. So when we've got Steven's thing of, all right, will you kill people to bring back Nico? You're like, well, Nico's a twat, so no, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you don't, there's not really any way into that scenario because we don't like either of the characters. Like, you know, would you kill to bring back your best friend is potentially quite an interesting conundrum. Would you kill to bring back your best friend who just killed someone and is a dick? You go... No, I, or at least I wouldn't expect <laughs> anyone to take my side if I did. This film really does succeed in dodging all of anything that could be of nuance, of interest, that could make really compelling entertainment. It dodges all of it. It dodges it the same way that Hellraiser 1 dodges being a slasher at every turn. Mm. Like, there's not enough vulnerability to these guys to make the whole thing interesting. And they're also, uh, they're not particularly good actors. Whereas I think with Hellraiser 1, a lot of, uh, a lot of what we say to Julia, I think, comes from because we uh, really like uh, Claire Higgins. Yeah. yeah. You know, she's a style icon, but she's also a really good performer. And the, um, the sort of the idea of like a boring uh, marriage, it's, it's, it's standing in contrast to like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, when you were younger, like shagging this dude. It's And then you've got that juxtaposed with, uh, with her daughter, who's beginning her first sexual relationship. Yeah. There's just something about that was immediately quite interesting. I mean, in a way, Julia is functionally the villain 
of Hellraiser 1. Because we hardly see Pinhead, he has his function in that. And Frank is, I mean, he's on the, he has no skin, he's on the back foot. He needs Julian's help. And without her, he's screwed. And she's the one that makes that choice. She's the one that lures his men and kills them. And she, she is the one that, you know, takes those lives. She is the villain of that film. Yeah, that's what we've got here with, I guess, um, so Julia is replaced by Stephen yeah. and Frank's being replaced by Nico. But mm. it doesn't, it, it, in, try, in trying to recall a much better dynamic, but I think if the film just kind of shows its ass, you know, you've got, again, characters that aren't very likable, characters that don't feel particularly vulnerable, and a dynamic that you don't really want to see succeed. Yeah. Whereas, like, even if we don't like Frank in the first one, I think we at least can understand what, what Julia's conflict is. We can understand the source of attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like comparing a friggin' takeaway burger to a gourmet meal, though, isn't it, really? At the end of the day? I mean, like, the, the, it's like walking into a McDonald's and ordering a salad. <laughs> I thought sort of thing of why go out for uh, burgers when you have steak at home, I guess. But like, with <laughs> your, your, you know, your steak at home and this one being your copy of Hellraiser Part One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the, the well, you can't call him the protagonist, but in in Revelation, they're a pair of spoiled rich kids that have hate yeah. their parents because their parents just want to be happy themselves. <laughs> That's a pretty terrible drive but we were meant to go along with it they do a weird sort of shortcut at the end they try and shoehorn in a bit of extra depth to it where uh steven well it's actually nico but pretending to be steven is talking about why they left and he's like there's things you didn't know about and you're like well nor do we yeah <laughs> <laughs> so pray tell because i, I want to like your character more you know i want to get inside the head of the troubled you fear because we yeah. have to still we we begin we begin with them just going all right guys are a bit sexist you know a bit racist don't like him <laughs> but it's a big jump to go from that to kill someone right and, yeah. just, and then just doesn't really give a shit after he does kill someone and then it's turning out the reason behind that is that their parents are unhappy with each other yeah oh okay <laughs> but at the end we're like ah oh, you guys have been shagging the audience are like eh. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot worse like, millions families out there that have gone have survived worse without turning <laughs> to some strange hobo's musical puzzle box oh absolutely like don't get me wrong if um i heard one of my parents is having an affair with one of my friend's parents it wouldn't be particularly good but i couldn't say that that would make me okay gonna... with killing someone in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's 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 a poor motivation to commit bathroom murder <laughs> Um, there's one really unintentionally funny bit where uh, Pinhead describes Nico's depravity as uh, rivaling his, rivaling himself, and I was like, "No, what? That's sad but true." <laughs> what I find really strange in this sequence, where we got several flashbacks and it's shot in the found footage format, but Pinhead is being filmed on camera and he's almost posing for the camera. He's just saying his creepy stuff. He's being filmed, found footage, and, you know, presumably the private investigator would have found this as well, looked over it and like, who is this guy? <laughs> uh, who's this guy? What the fuck is it? What, what's this guy even? What's he all about? 
I did do like the mum just going back there for a wee look at that and just the kind of befuddlement and the uh, confusion she'd feel watching this video. Like, mm-hmm. why didn't Pinhead destroy the camera? Um, yeah, why aren't they asking just... if this guy's got anything to do with the kids going missing? <laughs> I always thought uh, the technology goes weird in the presence of the Cenobites. Like in the first film, do you remember the, the television? And it's yeah. the filming of a, uh, a rose blossoming. But when the Cenobites are there, it all statics goes, what's in an IV? Blood mm. goes up into it and explodes. Like the presence of the Cenobites shuts down technology, which is not the case here. Uh, except for the phone, the, the uh, phone mask. Master, I suppose it's supposed to that. Yeah, no, the Cenobites are here now and they're going to confiscate everyone's phones and their cars. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, I guess the, the reason it's done is just so they can't call the police. Well, personally, I would love to see the police facing off against the Cenobites. <laughs> the police are going to turn up, arrest the Cenobites on multiple charges oh, of been- uh, indecency and grievous bodily harm. Speaking of police versus Cenobites, we're going to move on to judgment in just a moment. But yeah. uh, with this one, uh, what are going to, I'm not going to ask you if you think it's the worst yet, actually, because I guess I've kind of revealed that I don't think it's the worst. I think it's the second worst. But I don't want to know about you guys yet. But let's do star ratings. I'm going to give this one a 1.5. I'm not going to be so generous and just give it a 1. <laughs> one, one star. Like, don't be wrong. It's not an any like one point five is not a glowing recommendation. Like, you're we're not going to see the the Blu-ray goes. The Blu-ray goes. All right, here's a quote from David Smith from the Horror <laughs> Podcast. He thought it was proper bow. He did right. <laughs> but at the same time, um, the reason I just can't quite give it one is I enjoyed the family dynamics, or at least, or at least the. Like the general atmosphere, the feel of those sequences, the, the potential for drama, if not the drama that we actually saw, I liked it enough that I've not completely forgotten about the film. Like I liked it enough that it's uh, it, it it stuck with me still. But it's got less cool set pieces than the last three did. We don't have any of those nice music video sequences, which, uh, to be fair to Rick Bota, he could do. Instead, we just got this kind of film that I think it's uh, it's very difficult to like, and it's, uh, it's unfortunately it's, uh, it's impossible to love. It's impossible to like. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, the for me, it's like the scene with the vagrant in the strip club trying to give these two boys the box, and they tell him to f off how many times, and he persists. That scene encapsulates. I mean. The vagrant in that scene is this movie, insisting that you watch it and you don't want to, <laughs> and it won't get away. And how did you get past the bouncer? I will say there was good ideas. There, there was potential in the family dynamics. In seeing the hobo again, it's nice. You've got some nostalgia. The rules that were set up in the earlier films have reappeared. That's good to see, but it does not in any way save this film. And I think this film is so bad that I think a lot of fans kind of feel that it's a betrayal of the original films to actually bring up or evoke memories of them. I want to separate the difference between what the film could have been and what we're actually got. And I can't rate what a film could have been. I'm only going to rate what the film actually is. And that, that is why I'm giving it one star. 
And uh, yeah, Jim, any fa- any final thoughts you want to give him this one? Well, all I've got to say is uh, it just seems like they've regurgitated all iconic moments from the originals to try and add something to this, and it absolutely backfires on them. And yeah, there's there's nothing redeeming about it. Now, on that note about regurgitation, let us move on to a film in which somebody gets waterboarded with her own vomit. This is Hellraiser Judgment. Evil seeks evil. Judgment, a bloody outing which resurrects the series in gory fashion, like Frank emerging from the floorboards. This is what happens when you give an effects guy the budget to make his own movie. Now, I really liked this one. I consider this one to be a massive step up from the last, and I like that it ends the original canon on a high. However, I've got no idea what you guys are going to make of this one. Particularly you, Jim, having reached this ninth sequel, completing your Hellraiser journey, does it end well? What a journey it's been. Having seen this, it does feel like a weight off, I've got to say. (laughs) And yeah, it it does end well, especially in contrast to Revelation. Uh, I mean, it, it did have to be something extremely bad to be worse than the film we just talked about, so... It's quite a departure from what we've seen so far, I suppose. I mean, it starts off in quite a clerical manner, really. You've got uh, Pinhead, hmm. and is it the, the auditor, the administrator? The uh, auditor, yeah. yeah. He's just like, I've got your resume, even, so very, very administrative. Yeah. They're just discussing how they're going to go about business in our modern world you know technology is at the forefront of everything it's not like it was 30 odd years ago and then we're suddenly in this room where this horrible pervert pedophile guy is being questioned by a cenobite i assume uh, and they're basically giving it an interview as to whether he gets eviscerated or not i'm gonna to have to turn to the the human uh, wikipedia page of this one alistair the auditor is not technically a Cenobite, is he? I'll answer that in a second. I just wanted to jump in and say very quickly that my very first review for horror cult films was actually Hellraiser Judgment. And uh, it's been posted, it's on the website. And I was quite proud of that review. Um, no, the auditor is not a Cenobite. The Cenobites form an order. It's never said on screen, but it is known as the Order of the Gash. That's what it's called. Uh, it's not a great name, but uh, it's not a great name due to, I think, its alternate meaning. But um, no, the auditor is part of what's called the Stygian Inquisition. And what I love about this film is actually we are seeing another branch of uh, hell, another group of hell's minions doing their thing outside of the Cenobites. And I think the only other time we have seen that is with Hellraiser 4 and Angelique, who was clearly a demon, but we never get to see the full form of that demon. But the Stygian Inquisition, they have their own uh, modus operandi, and they are currently working with the Cenobites 
in the adventures of Hellraiser Judgment. Mm. And, and another thing I quite like is we actually see some form of divine intervention with this one as well. Oh, and God does a cameo at the end. <laughs> all, all the way through this entire series, we've seen hell, we've seen representations of hell, we've seen demons, but we've never actually seen if this is of a Christian faith-based or anything like that. But in this one, you know, we, we have a representative of heaven appear. And this is during what is the second interview, I suppose, where they turn up so, and they put a halt to proceedings, basically say, no, this guy is, is pure, leave them alone. So that's also a nice little bit on that character because you're thinking, oh, well, at this point, we know it's a police procedure, all a bit like some of the other films. And he's the detective working on the case, finding out who this murderer is. And it's related to someone that's already been seen by the uh, the auditor. And yeah, to get divine intervention, you think, ah, so yeah, they're just stopping him from being torn to shreds here because he's going to solve the case, etc., etc. But then when things evolve from there, it does take quite an interesting turn. And again, it, it feels like something we've not had in this series so far. Um, and yeah, it, it does take a, a step away from, uh, I guess, the canon, the, how, the, the rules as such, and we see something different evolve from it. But at the same time, it does kind of feel like we're heading back towards Hellseeker, Inferno, where, you know, the, the cop side of things, what's happening, is it's real? Am I second-guessing myself because of this guy? All that, that's going on. And then we see him escape with a puzzle box as well at one point. So does he open it then? We don't see him do it, but it's implied that he does, and lots of things start happening again. And then we get to the finale, which I've, personally I thought was quite a good little twist. Yeah, because it's got quite a small cast, which limits the extent of the mystery, really, because it does frame itself as a whodunit. Personally, I suspected it was the guy David, the brother David, partially because he looks a bit like Michael Gove, but also, <laughs> uh, but also, I, I, I just kind of suspected him because he's like he's been billed as here's the good one of the two, like yeah. here's the, here's the one who's less trouble. In this yeah. case, it does turn out to be the red herring. When we meet the characters, he's a cynical one, whereas his brother seems to be the more well-read, literary type, quite smart. The older one, you know, wiser. The younger one, snarky, you know, tends to just shrug off any advice he's been given. So, yeah, it does kind of point to him as possibly being the bad, bad apple of the bunch. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, he, we we also get from Sean. He, he like Sean seems to take to the audit process, the judgment process, quite well. Oh, He's like, yeah. <laughs> "Oh, you're judging me, are you?" Like rolls up his sleeves, like "Let's get started." Killed some kids. So there's something quite interesting about the, about the sort of scream-like thing we're doing here of raising a possibility that this guy's a killer, which then makes it a twist when we find out later on that he's a killer. Like with Billy Loomis, when you go, this guy's got a serial killer written all over him. We take him in, murder continues. And in this case, yeah. you know, we have the divine intervention that, that kicks in and they're like, all right, well, uh, he's innocent. 
if ever like, oh no, he was so <laughs> guilty that uh, he that he disgusted the uh, the assessor. I liked the whole. That's a great sequence. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. fucking is like that was a. I assume it was meant to be a take on the idea of a sin eater. You know, and they go, well, here's yeah. our sin eater. He's the, this guy's going to make spaghetti out of your sins and then devour them and vomit up the vomit and then you sprayed on these girls. It's definitely uh, inspiration <laughs> from what the Cenobites are, how they operate. And he would do something similar to that, but completely different. And I think with the Stygian Inquisition, you've, you've got that. You, because you, you open the puzzle box, the Cenobites come, and then they tear your soul apart. Ouch. And if you get summoned to the Stygian Inquisition's house, you're dragged through this slow court process that's, I mean, you're just suffering from beginning to end in that process. Yeah, I've got to say anything about this process. It's quite unintentionally funny. Um, so we've got what I assume is a meta joke at the beginning where we've got the auditor speaking to uh, Pinhead about how, like, in the days of electronic devices, the box isn't cut it for anyone, which I assume is a way of saying, look, Netflix exists nowadays. We've got absolutely tons of these out there horror films. Who gives a fuck about Hellraiser franchise? You know, it's a bit like in Freddy vs. Jason, where we open on Freddy saying no one's scared of him any longer. And I think it's basically doing the same sort of like piss take of, yeah, this franchise is a bit long of a tooth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But then we've got the bit where the auditor says, oh, I've got a brand new strategy, though, right? I did strategy is sending a letter to a Nazi's house saying, I know what you've done, and hoping that guy stuff at his address. You're like, what? I mean, I, I can imagine him writing like a thousand of these and like 999 of the Nazis get the letter and then go, all right, I'm going to run and hit the road. And one guy goes, yeah, I'm going to go to the house. <laughs> What's all about? Like, he says he's my friend. <laughs> You're like, this, no. Um- I think, is it not like the letter's like thrown into a dumpster and the guy dives in to get it? Um, I mean, it's, audience is not meant to sympathize with this character and we're meant to believe, yeah, he deserves what he gets. I think it's another one where we're, it's like in Hellraiser 6 and Hellraiser 5 where you you want to be on the side of Pinhead and the Order of the Gash um, <laughs> because even though they're bad guys on this occasion... They're, they're doing a good thing by punishing bad people. It's like uh, the Tyrannosaurus Rex in almost every iteration of the Jurassic Park films. He's the lawyer, <laughs> stands on the bad guy. Um, you know, the T-Rex is a good eye for bad guys. Yeah, and, like uh, part, part, uh, it's a four of Jurassic World where mm-hmm. it comes in and then bars the Indominus Rex. Yeah. And, uh, and then what? It kills a baddie in, in uh, the fifth one as well, doesn't it? Like, does uh-huh. it, yeah. <laughs> yes. So yeah, the uh, Stygian Inquisition were with the Stygian Inquisition on this part. Once it's made clear who this guy is and what his crimes are, and what is good as well, it's um, do you know in some movies they do this sort of? It's a way that you establish if someone's lying or not. You learn what the baseline is, and then when they're lying, you look for the deviations. With filmmaking, you establish a baseline and then you you twist the story into something else. So, for instance, it opens with how the Stygian Inquisition functions normally. You, you get questioned. A guy eats the uh, the confession. Then, then the uh, the jury reach their verdict, and you get taken through to I think it's the butcher, 
I think there's mm. another one. Um, but the process sure is then all... the, uh, the GIMP comes next. <laughs> we are, I'm sure it's a different name. By the way, do you know what that reminds me of? Do you remember an Ace Ventura pet detective? When Ace Ventura's with the tribe and a big fella turns, he has to fight someone, a hero of the, the tribe. The big fella turns up, but then he turns around and he's got a sack on his back. And then the, he has to fight the little guy that comes out the back. Uh, but the little yeah. guy is completely nuts. <laughs> the butcher kind of reminds me of that because this thing wearing this strange wooden mask that looks like an owl, but this fat, hulking body turns up. But then this insane, bladed, gas mask wearing creature comes out the back of his his backpack and it just it reminds me i, I don't think it was intended to remind me of ace Ventura pet detective but that part does it's a good little sort of um like misdirection yeah, see i absolutely love the opening 20 25 minutes or so of this film like it's showing this doesn't fuck around mm-hmm. here you know it's saying all right we're going to be the biggest nastiest hellraiser film that you've seen so far I think this is by far the most hellish imagery in the series, uh, or at least mm. the, the, the goriest in the series so far. You know, this is where we see the torture that's only been talked about until this point. Someone even puts a dog inside someone's womb in this film, right? Like, there's, there's no chill at all with <laughs> Hellraiser Judgment. And that aspect of it, I, I really like. And I think yeah. that all of these grotesqueries, all of these, uh, these the kind of administrative staff, I like that they all have a unique aesthetic about them. You know, they have this kind of game, kind of again, this tension between something that's quite ugly, but often something that also looks kind of striking as well. And um, this character, the auditor, I like that he's he isn't just a concept. You know, he does work as a character as well. I like we've almost got a sitcom-like quality to this kind of stressed-out middle <laughs> manager. <laughs> he's like, all right, I've got to keep all these people happy. I've got all this crew to organize. My boss is a bit of a dick. Like, I love the bit where uh, he's going in to see Pinhead, you know, tapping the door, like, nervously shuffling in. The chatterer starts, like, coming towards him, and Pinhead's going, no, as if, like, the chatterer is like his <laughs> <Yeah>. dog. <laughs> I think the chatter has always been the heavy, like mm. uh, in the very first iteration. Like, okay, I did say this in my review where you have a fight scene in Hellraiser Two between Doctor Chenard, Cenobite Chenard, and the other Cenobites, and then we get the whole, basically, Hellraiser, Hell on Earth, Hellraiser Three. That entire film is about Pinhead resuming his former role. Essentially, we never see how Chatterer comes back into the fold. We just assume that he does. It is, in this film, because original film, he comes in, he grabs Kirsty by the back of the hair and it's two fingers down her throat. And, you know, he's holding her in position and chattering right in her face. And then later on, when Frank in Larry's body, I love the Mission Impossible aspect of these films, he wants to leave because he knows he's about to get diced and minced but it's obviously Chatterer that pushes him back into the room. You're not going anywhere. So Chatterer is the one that is sort of manhandling people in these films. He's as heavy as the, the bouncer, if you will. And he would, he's a bouncer who would let in uh, the vagrant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just want to make this all about the opening scene, but again, it is, this whole opening bit is, I think, the best part of it, although we do get... A lot of like, arguably, you could even say this film shoots its wad a little bit too quickly. A kind of 
cinematic form of premature ejaculation because once you've had this, <laughs> once you've had this old bit, the rest of the film isn't going to live up to it. No, but you can't make that analogy because that means the rest of the film is just crying and apologizing <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. This film pulls no punches. I mean, maybe you, maybe to use this metaphor, maybe for the rest of films, Gary G. Tunnel would go, "Yeah, I did that. So what? I'm happy. Like, like a selfish <laughs> lover." But, Gary, if you're listening, thanks again for coming on our show. Now, very much appreciated. Now, the uh, thing with the cops, they make the cops brothers. But I just don't think there's much emotional impact with that. Maybe we're trying to go for like an Abel and Cain style thing here. Yeah. Like uh, you've got your fallen brother of one who isn't, but it just kind of feels a bit tacked on. I mean, in a way, I suppose it makes the infidelity worse when you find out that that, uh, Michael Gove lookalike's been shagging his wife, which to be fair, (laughs) something Michael Gove (sighs) would probably do. But I I, I just sort of thought it was... uh, like, like it was, it almost felt like it was doing a shortcut to try and make you care more about the situation. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I wanted to see a bit more of that relationship explored. Too sure on that one, because I think I said this in my review actually that I wasn't quite sold. Like the, both men playing those roles are good actors, but I didn't just didn't quite buy that they were brothers. And in my review, what I said was, um, and do check out my review by the way, but what I said was like, for instance, uh, Star Trek Next Generation, you've got a great actor in Patrick Stewart. Phenomenal actor. But we have Patrick Stewart playing a Frenchman, Jean-Luc Picard. Patrick Stewart just oozes, like when he farts, it must sound like rural Britannia. He just oozes Britishness. He, he doesn't come across really to me as a Frenchman. I think they should have made him British, but they didn't. Anyway, that's a complete sidetrack. This film... I get that they're brothers, and I I do think it is the Cain and Abel aspect they're going for, but um, it just there's clearly an age difference between the two, and there's not, I suppose, that familial resemblance. Not that you'd expect that, but as I say, I just don't buy these two as uh, as brothers. I suppose it's also just about the dynamic that they maybe give both of them with the supporting cast, because you'd say, well, Frank and Larry... We never see them on screen together, but at the same time, or we do very, very briefly, and and that's True. one of them. One of them's, killing one, the of them's, one of them's missing his skin. Yeah, um, but the thing is, like their relationship, there's enough implied about what that would have been like, and I think with this, it's like yeah. I'm thinking, well, what you know, do these brothers normally get on? <laughs> like, if he look up to him when they're kids, I, I don't know. It felt like it was a little bit of backing story that. We weren't really getting because, like, the kind of cop noir aspect. I, I don't think it were. I don't. I don't think it's badly done here. Even if you could, uh, could reasonably say that it takes a lot from a movie seven, at least in terms of the basic concept and the ironic deaths and stuff that you're doing. But uh, I, I, I think for, there, there seemed to be quite a lot of all right. Well, we're doing a ninety minute film. We've got all this hellish imagery here. We're going to try and capture. Sean's breakdown. It's a very intimate film with Sean. We follow him throughout most of it, and it even feels strange when we get scenes that he's not in after the credits. And it just kind of felt like a lot of the side characters, uh, their relationships were sort of afterthoughts because you go, well, the main character is a bit of a loner, and it means and it means we don't really see him doing a whole lot of interaction with other people anyway. I think a lot of the the, the supporting cast do 
seem to be there just to push things along a bit. Now, obviously, you've got them being chaperoned, I suppose, whilst also being investigated by this uh, new colleague that's been sent along to assist them. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of murders and they've still not solved the case. We know why, because it's Sean who's been carrying them out. But, uh, yeah, that kind of just pushes things along a little bit. And I think it's the same with the familial relationship, the two brothers. It's probably that they're brothers just because it saves with a lot of asking questions and who's this, what's that, mm-hmm. who, you know, who's doing this and why. So I think, again, that just hurries things along a bit because we just take it that they already know, you know, this certain aspect, etc. And therefore, because it's his brother, he wouldn't suspect him as a murderer, etc., etc. And yeah, I think there's just uh, most of the people that we see on the screen are just there just to hurry things along a little. Now, the, the basic concept of walking into a building and then surprise you're going to be judged like there's just something interesting about that and i think that this is a movie where the uh, the detective plot isn't as exciting as this kind of more abstract hell part I, like i like the politics of hell going throughout it i uh, i like seeing a uh, pinhead getting sent back down to earth by god like a kind of thing that he's not necessarily the biggest, nastiest thing here. That uh, there are other forces beyond Pinhead, and that he's also uh, he's also kind of vulnerable. And that's a new take on Pinhead because he's aside from a little bit of the fourth, where fourth we kind of saw him on the, on the back foot a little bit of Angelique, although we quickly got rid of her. Uh, I think this is a oh, totally he, new take on Pinhead. We're he getting. subjugated her. Hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. That line that you'll, I'll either work with you, you'll either work with me or for me. And I think after the failure of the, I think the modern day, quote unquote modern, because it was back in 1995, after she failed in that sequence, he then turns her into a Senna by his punishment. And then she works for him. But I, I, I know what you mean that there's, that's the only time outside of the Hellraiser judgment that we actually see Pinhead, uh, working with another, say, agent of hell, but that is not someone that he directly controls. So on uh, Pinhead, Paul T. Taylor, I thought he was pretty fucking good. I think the design they've got for him looks ace. Massive I, improvement from yeah, <laughs> like It's a thankless task taking on the role of Pinhead. It's probably been made slightly easier because you had a shite one before you. But during this... I, compl- I I ignored that I wasn't watching Doug Bradley. I didn't miss Doug Bradley while I watched this one. Would yeah. Doug Bradley have made this film better? Probably. But at the same time, I think this guy, Paul T. Taylor, he did, he did a good enough job that I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I wish Doug Bradley was here. It's That's the thing. I think he's, he's no... I mean, it's true. He's not Doug Bradley, but he his performance is good. And it's certainly... It passes the vibe test. His contact lenses look days too. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I would you, prefer the, the big black eyes with the centibites. Yeah, mm-hmm. sorry, you're you not it. you're not sat there thinking who the fuck is this guy and why does he sound like that? Yeah, why does he got pinhead suit on? There's nowhere near the cartoon character of the I'm previous film. I say that with Hellraiser Revelations, I mean we didn't have to try very hard to be better than that. But I say that Paul T. Taylor surpassed that by a wide margin. Hmm. And I want to point something else out. Actually, they did actually change his his outfit for Paul T. Taylor in Judgment. Now, what you'll know about the Doug Bradley 
pinhead. It's obviously the pinhead thing, but on his chest, across the, I think the pectorals there, there's like three deep gouges with the skin, a half square of skin like turned down. Yeah. And you see three bloody sections on each side, so it's symmetrical. Um, With Paul T. Taylor's pinhead, they've changed it so that there's a diamond-shaped cut in the center of the chest that reveals the breastbone. And the diamond shape is was intentionally chosen to represent Leviathan from Hellraiser 2. That's cute. So I, I, actually, Paul T. Taylor actually plays the version of Pinhead I actually prefer the most. That For me, I prefer the idea of the, the breastbone bit missing than just these sort of hooks just taken out of the chest. Um, the center, and as he is, you know, the Hell Priest, it would make sense that he would symbolize Leviathan in some way. It's definitely um, probably one of the more ambiguous takes on it as well, because he's working with these people as opposed to a singular unit. So, And it's never really elaborated on throughout the film. We do get to see him operate at the end, but other than that, it's 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 just kind of a mysterious, a shadowy lurker. Um, maybe just giving the odd nod here and there as to what's going on. I would really like to see a sitcom about hell, like a kind of HR <laughs> style thing. You know what? Because I, I really enjoy comedy about the eternal suffering of the damned souls. <laughs> That's a difficult pitch, David. I would like to see you make. I it. want to see the auditor kind of running around like Basil Fawlty, like people keep talking him around. <laughs> well, it's not that far off with this one. Is it? <laughs> you got you got the angels and Pinhead, and we're just not getting on, and like you know. And uh, you've, when you've got the auditor maybe having to having to sit down with his boss and being told to work on his manner and things like that, yeah. you've got potential. <laughs> I mean, there is... It, it's um, The auditor's actually played by the director, isn't it? Gary Tuncliffe. Yeah, Gary J. Tuncliffe. And it does cool. have a bit of a camp approach to the character he at times. did also write the previous film, Revelations. But as I said, it was written in three days and it was denounced by everyone. A lot of the Hellraiser films will say from the mind of Clive Barker, which is a very strange thing to say if <laughs> somebody else is coming up with the concept. I've, hey, Clive, I've got an idea. Can I say it came from your mind? Um, I'd be like, no. Um, but Clive Barker, <laughs> with revelations, actually, I don't mean to go back onto the previous film because we have had that conversation, but like he said, it's not from my mind. It's not even from my butthole. That's what he thought of that film. And I think as well, um, Doug Bradley, I mean, obviously we're in the two films now that Doug Bradley turned down the role of Pinhead for. So it's, uh, I believe that he wasn't offered the right price or he had to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA before he got to see the script. Um, I think it's just been, because these two films were sort of made to retain the rights I can't obviously speak for Doug Bradley, but he did make that choice not to to be in these two films. Yeah, because I've heard with um, with Revelations, I believe it was about it being rushed, but also they said, look, we'll give you far less money than we usually would. Which the thing is, the amount of money that Doug Bradley can get if you're going to a signing session or something like that, where he'd also probably have a bit more fun than working on the set of Hellraiser Revelations, and <laughs> I, I don't really blame him. With this one, 
uh, it was about non-disclosure agreements. I believe that uh, Doug Bradley uh, was asked to sign one, which uh, he was like, well, fuck this. It's like a like three-page document about you can't talk about this film and so on and so on. Now, I was going to ask during the interview how true that was. We didn't, I didn't bother just because I didn't want to kind of take away from Paul T. Taylor's performance by just asking questions about, oh, was it, was it gutting not to get Doug Bradley? But it sounds a bit like with uh, Revelations, the reason he didn't sign, sorry, with Judgment, the reason he didn't sign up to it largely was an administrative thing. But then I suppose he probably already emotionally cut ties to the series to some extent by not appearing for one beforehand. Yeah, I think I could so, see that, yeah. And when once you've not done one, it becomes easier to then not do any more. Yeah, I mean, I did I did think the extra time with the writing, in other words, more than three days, um, <laughs> it, it showed of this because Pinhead got to have some pretty cool lines in it. Yeah. His did. whole bit where to use the line from four, when he's going, suffer me, how dare you use such a word? That leads into the speech about how much he like savors every uh, piece of suffering and stuff, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I thought it, I thought it was a good kind of um, it's a good return to the sort of poetry of the early Hellraiser movies. Mm, yeah, there was a couple of lines uh, at the uh, crescendo as well when it's it's all being revealed that uh, Sean was a killer and his brother and his wife are finding out. He says, bow your head to the catalogue of filth your brother has created. <laughs> That's a good one. Really good little bit. Just want to cut in with, uh, very quickly with, I don't mean to go on about my review, which is on the Horror Cult Film <laughs> website, by the way. It's uh, There's a thing that Pinhead says in this, evil seeks evil. And I just want to share uh, with you two gentlemen my observation in my review that that tagline, I feel, would have worked better in the film Hellraiser, Hellseeker. Ah, yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. I mean, at least it would have made Hellseeker's name, like, relevant. Make some sense. Like, yeah. it's like, it's like, what the fuck is a Hellseeker? He doesn't even, like, he doesn't even know what he's looking for. He, he didn't seek hell. He found the box, gave it to his wife, and she killed him with it. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> and especially as the thing is, you go, okay, this is Hellraiser 6, so mm-hmm. we don't have 7, 8, 9, 10 yet, so you can call this film anything. You could even call it Revelations. <laughs> you, you could. Choose, you, you, you could choose, call it Revelations. You choose Hellseeker instead. Like, because it, it's not an obvious enough name for someone to have sat down and put no effort into it. It implies <laughs> an amount of effort, just a really weird effort. Well, I think they're going on the thing of, like, because the first film's Hellraiser, second was Hellraiser, well, it was Hellbound. So we're doing Hellraiser, and then the subtitle also has to start with Hell. They get Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Bloodline's obviously the first one to abandon that principle. So it's uh, it's like the, the Harry Potter and the, you know, we we'll always get the definitive article in each title. So uh, after that, they went with the one word, Inferno, Hellseeker, Deader. Dead again. <laughs> Completely dead. <laughs> Absolutely dead. It's worse than that. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> He's so, deader than him. <laughs> He's the deadest of them all. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, anyway, on this yes. one, if you want to hear our thoughts on Hellraiser 6, go back an episode. It's good. Um, Jesus, it's Jesus, Jesus Christ. Same city, completely different zip code. <laughs> that was a good line, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jesus wept when he heard that line. 
<laughs> which is again regurgitated in this one. Yeah. But going back to the auditor again, mm-hmm. that these are clearly the most interesting parts of the the film, especially when is it they're sent off for cleansing or, or, yeah. or clean. Uh, these it's, just, it's easily the they've gone for the biggest gross out most visceral look for it. it's the mankiest uh-huh. we've seen so far and uh, just all the different things that they do I believe he was dirtier after the clinic yeah <laughs> <laughs> that, that's they're like we're going to put your own vomit back yeah. down here bro <laughs> yeah spitting in these little like they're licking him clean and then spitting it into a little pot and then putting that in his mouth oh that's <laughs> The soundtrack's really good as well. Effective you've got these, sequence. You've got these really queasy organs that play over all this stuff in the house. A few other things that are pretty good. I like the display of hands we have on the roundabout. I thought that looked genuinely quite yeah, silly. Yeah, that was, we did that was really good. not need her to look at the uh, eye and then go, an eye for an eye. <laughs> like, the morons of the audience and don't follow this. But, does complete that sentence as well. Yeah, <laughs> tooth for a tooth. Because other hands had teeth in them. I would, I would say this is for the section of the audience that preferred Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> as opposed to Philosopher's Stone. Um, I, I like, so we've touched on this, but the way it's building upon the existing lore with a separate kind of branch of hell, mm-hmm. um, it gives this kind of feel like the first movie of something that's like, quietly epic you know it's armageddon on a very small scale it's all happening well mostly happening in one house and that i just thought was a really mm-hmm. was a really cool kind of return to the basic formula again i understand that this movie began uh, life's a different script i believe that uh, gary wrote it i wrote a treatment as a hellraiser film mm-hmm. Figured it wouldn't get made, so took all the hellraiser elements out of it to write another script and then change it back to hellraiser later on it's uh, something I saw Doug Bradley make quite a bitchy comment about where he's going, uh, oh, yeah, he had this whole new idea which involved like a, a musical box. What does that sound like? And you're like, well, you know, fair play. Started life as Hellraiser, stopping Hellraiser, became Hellraiser again. I just sort of thought like the way we're seeing the world get getting expanded, it felt a lot more natural than any of the other sequels when they've introduced new elements. Yeah, yeah. Partially because he bothered to actually sit down to have an, a, a metaphysical explanation for them. You've got the bit with the angel at the end. The, this is, I was just going to say about the angel at the end that that's one of my favourite sequences in terms of how this film really broadens the lore in a way that virtually none of the other films did apart from two, because two showed you hell, really. And this one shows you there's other orders of hell who are functioning differently, but they're also uh, taking apart sinful people. But we also see our first angel. And I like to think of this as, um, you know, you get set up and pay off. Like this was set up in Hellraiser Bloodline. Remember the sequence when we're back in 18th century France, the guy's having a chat with his mentor in the morgue. And he's, you know, conducting an autopsy, but he says, you know, reasonably, if there's a hell, then there's also a heaven. And like outside of that, there's nothing in this series that suggests there's a heaven apart from Hellraiser 10, which confirms it. An angel appears and yeah. uh, says, I know what you're doing, Stygian Inquisition. I want to quote Eddie Izzard here. He said, you're buying far too inquisitive. 
and uh, <laughs> let that guy go. And uh, they don't want to let him go because they still want to take, they want to tear souls apart. That's, that's good. I like that. The thing that personally pleased me about all this was um, Pinhead has become a bit of a better deal maker since part six. You know, part six is <laughs> yeah. going no deals and she goes i've got a deal and he's like i'm listening right? and in, <laughs> in this one uh, he's like no deals he goes look tell you what i might have killed lots of people including kids and that's why i've got my savior complex and joined the police but I tell you what i'll bring you two people that shagged each other and pinhead's like, what? <laughs> like <laughs> we're playing like sin top trumps you're not going to beat a uh, murder of children with two people committing adultery I believe he refers to it as your pitiful adultery. <laughs> That's technically like the previous film, Hellraiser 6, where, ah, Kirsty, we meet again, says Pinhead. And she's like, we do, but I tell you what, I've got a deal for you. You let me go, and I'll give you two guys that haven't killed anyone, but they were thinking about offing me, and three of the women that my husband was sleeping with. Does that sound like a deal? And obviously, like, this wasn't filmed or scripted or seen but presumably Pinhead would have had to agree for it. He's like, do you know what instead of you, I will take those five souls. Yeah, so he's got, we've got some sort of weighing up system here and this, but this one you're like <laughs> Sean, he must, you know, the guy's a baddie but he's also deeply delusional to think, oh, I'll tell you yes. what though, I've done some shit but them and to be fair by the way to Sean, as a protagonist, I find him more interesting than the protagonists of five and six. Definitely. They, they made his issues seem like real point, issues, yeah. basically. Whereas the previous uh, characters, say, from five and six, they were of their own making. Whereas Sean in this one feels like he's... Uh, it's implied that he was in the military. Um, probably even mentioned, but um, yeah, he's clearly suffering from his time in service he's gone on to being a policeman and he's obviously not dealt with his demons for want of a better phrase oh no uh, i mean this is a guy who's like uh obviously was a, we we can gather that people died who shouldn't have died and now he's like well i want to try and protect people by putting murderers behind bars you know that seems like he's trying to work through his own guilt yeah and yeah, I, I, I like, although I thought that the stuff with his wife's infidelity was a bit rushed, I also quite like the way that, the way that we see their relationship as just being like, this is all quite cold here. You know, that, uh, like, when he comes in, she's asleep, you know, he's, like, looking at her, like, oh, you know, going for cuddling stuff, and, like, it's not... Uh, partic- it's not particularly uh, intricately written or anything, but it felt it felt quite real. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it, it feels like at this yeah. point we we still don't know his true colours, but you, you get shades of you know is, is this a guy going through some PTSD? Um, and it's also implied that perhaps he's opened the puzzle box at this point as well because he starts seeing flashes of the Cenobites and so on, and that's when he loses it and runs off so the, the, there is a lot to him there, there is a few layers that well let's say it's a, a little deeper than the puddle of some of the previous characters that we've seen yeah uh, I, I thought like when he got killed off you know quite unceremoniously when Pinhead's like yeah I'll send him back to the room knowing exactly what happened I quite liked that it was quite brutal it was just very matter of fact the violence hmm. and uh then, of course, Pinhead's going to get sent straight down to uh, Earth for 
what's it's going to be presumably an abandoned sequel that's a shame by the way i'd love to see that film during the upcoming interview uh gary talked us through what that would have looked like and uh you know it, it could have been a, a fresh new direction of this with an of pinhead now just kind of wa- yeah. wandering like a vagrant you know maybe he becomes like the uh hobo guy with the box <laughs> even if like let's say worst case scenario is the last hellraiser it won't be by the way the remake in the original but if this is the la- if the hellraiser ended with judgment i'd still be quite happy because it's always that thing with magicians where you walk off stage and you leave them wanting more. And with 10, unlike the Rick Bota trilogy and Revelations, this film left me wanting more. And quite a lot of the previous ones did not. I think for the future of the series, I think this will be the end of this canon. I assume what we're going to get will be a new continuity. Yeah, um, I think so. And then eventually it will go straight to DVD. But we'll probably then get a, a reinvention of the uh, yes. <laughs> One of the problems of hi- hiring an actor that people have heard of to play Pinhead is she's probably only going to do one of them. For, uh, so then we'll, we'll go into the cycle of uh, straight to Blu-ray, straight to streaming sequels with uh, uh, what? Like, uh, there'll be Pinhead number uh, number five. We'll get so uh, or yeah. It? Well, no, I mean she'll be number four. So uh, by the time she leaves the series, which um, uh, you know, she'll oh, then we'll get the, right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, other other things that got written down. Just a couple of very small parts. I enjoyed the reference to Noah's kids committing incest. There's um, <laughs> a, a passing gag, which also shines a light on one of the darker sequences from the Bible. And uh, also, Allison getting dragged out by her front just looked ace. Like, who goes straight for her? Yanked, and she's just yanked forward, like, forward, yeah. like, lands in her face, like, ooh, and pulled. And I just thought that, that whole bit, like, like the cool reminds me of Hellraiser Four, where Angelique punches a hole in a pillar, finds the concrete uh, hidden box that presumably was the one that Terry Farrell hid in at the end of Hellraiser Three, mm. and the guy just opens it, hook gets him in hell, and that's him dealt with, and then Pinhead and Angelique have their scene, and it sort of it seems like that's that sort of quick way of doing it, whereas. I don't really think Pinhead's the type of guy that likes to take his time. We have centuries to know the things that make you whimper. It reminds you of what it is about the series that you like. Firstly, it's so unexpectedly good for a part 10, especially a part 10 that's following a bunch of shite. Like Jason X is a perfectly good part 10, but Jason X, well, is following a shite film. It wasn't following a whole string of of straight to DVD films. And uh, I think with this one, it just sort of felt like this is doing Hellraiser again. This is the things that you liked about the early Hellraisers. Some bits that you weren't too keen on the later Hellraisers, but it's kind of combining the two of them, like the police procedural, the slight, sometimes slightly awkward uh, film noir elements, but combining them with this uh, good look at like sins, guilty, co- guilty consciences, uh, this idea of a world that's not like our own and one that uh, is just a doorway from here, you know? Yeah, I can pretty much agree on that. And, yeah. and going back to talking yeah. about the lore it establishes, not only does it branch out on that lore, it doesn't shit on anything that's come prior to it either. Unlike Bloodline, that, that already you know contradicts several moments from the previous films and, and so on. Whereas this one, it just adds to it. It doesn't contradict anything that we've seen previously. Yeah, I mean, I think the 
Cenobites as moral arbiters is the only bit that we are seeing a bit of a contradiction with, but at the same time, that's been a contradiction since the, since the second anyway, so it's not um, it's not really an issue by the time you reach part 10. It, you know, uh, angels to some, demons to others, whereas they, are, they in fact have a strict moral code. But, you know, again, we're not, if someone goes, you fucking... Gary J. Tonicliffe ignored all the others. You go, well, he didn't he didn't ignore parts two through to nine, which yeah. had already made that jump. You know, if anything, he's doing something that ties all ten films together. So I just wanted to say another thing. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of this bit about a visual effects artist then going to make up their own film. And you know, how you would expect it to be good and gory and full of great effects. Have you seen Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead? No, I know enough about this one. This is the 90s <laughs> one, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had high hopes for that one. Considering he did the effects work on Dawn of the Dead, etc., it felt like a TV movie, you know? Like, you really reined it in for an audience that aren't specifically going to want to go and see this. It, it was just so baffling that this was the same guy that has done all those amazing, gruesome effects from the previous Romero films but luckily this time it's not the case and we do get gore in the bucket loads here you heard that uh, for the Blu-ray distributors if you want to quote our podcast you can have Jim Lamming says better than Night of the Living Dead (laughs) (laughs) how do you have an asterisk (laughs) you heard it here first folks (laughs) Uh, I remember it was a guy who used to say that I gave a better review to the movie Teeth than I did to The Shining. Yes, the made-for-TV version of The Shining, not the main Shining. The two Shining, they are two different animals. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know what, we should do an episode at some point, The Shining, Doctor Sleep, and the made-for-TV Shining. If it wasn't six hours long or something like that, I'd gladly do that. Um, anyway. That's an endurance test, and we've just reached the end of this endurance test. Aye, <laughs> so we're reaching the end of this endurance test. What is going to be our star rating for Judgment? Hey, Alistair, what do you reckon? I'll be consistent with my review, in which I gave it three and a half stars. And that's very good for a 10th entry in a series. And did you guys know that there's, uh, have you watched the credits, there's a, there's an extra scene? Yeah, it takes place in a, a German house, I believe, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Yeah. I, I actually, I actually, to be honest, uh, I only read about it. I didn't, I didn't see oh, it. I went, okay. I went, oh fuck, she stuck around like Marvel movies. You know? <laughs> but yeah, so what's what we see? We see a house. Okay, what happens? Yeah, you see the house, and it's very similar. It's a different house, but it's similar to the one that was seen in the movie. And two cyclists roll up, and I think they're Jehovah's Witnesses, and they knock on the door, and I think the letterbox opens, and you see it's the auditor inside, and he goes. Two. It's not even a Tuesday, so I think he's doing a little pun for when pizzas get delivered. Oh, I like <laughs> it. I like it. <laughs> I'm not going to be quite as generous again. Uh, it's not, I know it's normally the way around. Uh, I'm going to go with a free this one. Uh, some of the story did lose me a bit, and it's only an 85 minute film, but it did feel every minute of that sometimes. Uh, it's definitely a marked improvement over a lot of the sequels. And it's definitely one of the better designs on Hell, the Cenobites, the the Inquisition, etc. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go with a three three out of five. All right. Now for me, uh, I find just a difficult one to rate because in a way it sort of shows the 
the folly of a star rating system because right. I can't I shouldn't give this more stars than I gave Hellraiser two because spoiler in the ranking, I can't put this above Hellraiser two. At the same time, I also I can't remember what I gave Hellraiser two. If I give Hellraiser two uh I think I gave it three and a half. I'm gonna give this one like three and a half to four stars as well. Basically I thought this is a I, this was so much better than a Hellraiser 10 had any right to be. It was a, it's a good sign-off of the series, and while I'd like to see more, at the same time, as you said, it leaves us wanting more. And uh, frankly, the last time a Hellraiser film made us want more would probably be number three. So, uh, yeah, uh, there we go now, folks. We haven't completely spoiled it. Let's move on to our rankings. Welcome back to the Hellraiser Retrospective. Well, we've done all 10 movies now. Oh, it's been an emotional journey. Few laughs, few tears, all grown as people. So now let's just go to the bottom line. We're going to see the rankings. Some of these films are so bad that they'll tear your soul apart. But when the franchise is good, it has such sights to show you. We're going to do this as a round robin where I'll state the number and we're all going to say our film for that number and so on and so on. You probably guessed most of my ranking by now because I've been quite shit at uh, doing <laughs> interfilm comparisons without uh, <laughs> giving things Not away. Not these cards close to your chest. Yeah, I think Jim's the closest we have to Dark Horse here. So um, let's begin with number 10. So my number 10 Hell World. This is the worst film in the series. What do you reckon, Jim? I don't think Hell World is quite as bad because I'm going to stick a revelation in at number 10 due to it being irredeemably dog shit. <laughs> uh, Alistair, uh, you're also a um, uh, revelation man, yeah? I'm with Jim on this one. I, <laughs> I, I was not impressed with uh, revelations in any any degree at all so revelations for me of all 10 hellraisers that's that's my least favorite i mean don't get me wrong like when i when i say uh my num my uh number nine which by the way is going to be hellraiser revelations it's not mm, a glowing recommendation here <laughs> <laughs> like I just think the hell world is capable of passing even the lowest of expectations. Uh, right, so number nine for me is Revelations. Uh, Alistair, what's your number nine? I'm going to go with Hell World because they had the idea, they had the internet idea. They didn't capitalize on it. They went to a big house with a party randomly. Just stupid shit happens. Someone falls off a balcony, a ghost, someone cries. I turned the film off. And uh, Jim, what's your number nine? Yeah, um, I'm the same. I've got to go with Hellworld. Uh, not particularly great. Um, well, pretty bad, actually, but still slightly more watchable than Revelation. All right, so now we get get into the, uh, get into the weeds a little bit here with number eight. So this was actually a slightly tricky one because there's a couple of films that could go in this position, but... Uh, I had to go with Hellraiser Deader. Uh, I just think with Deader, you had a pretty cool concept. I don't think it was well made. I, I think it was 
really tedious and I don't think the story clicked at all by the end. So, uh, yeah, Hellraiser Deader is my number eight. Uh, Alistair, what's your number eight? I think, I think when you're saying that we're in the weeds of it, we're in the, I mean, unquestionably, we are in the Rick Bota areas of the, the Hellraiser films here. Um, I mean, I think you know mine's not Deader because I've always said to you that I prefer Deader to Hellseeker. So I think for me, Hellraiser 6 is, for numerous reasons, the mistreatment of Kirsty Cotton character, the blatant remake of Hellraiser Inferno, Paul's trying to also make it, um, Jacob's Ladder. And as I say, the guy wakes up 13 times. That's, <laughs> and he never once falls asleep. He's just straight up dead. It's it, Hellseeker for me. Just Hellseeker. Just bung it in there. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, Jim, what's your number eight? I'm with David this time. We've did a great <laughs> performance from the lead, but it's not a great film. Really. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if, if someone said to me, can you explain what the, the ending of that? I go, well, if a dead hmm. group wants to get rid of Pinhead or doesn't want to get killed by Pinhead, so decides if you get someone who suffered to cut to, to dive and come back and they can somehow get rid of Pinhead once and for all. Like, if you don't know why the characters are motivated to do the things they do, it's so difficult to be engaged with a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, number seven, with apologies to uh, to Ross Hughes, who's hopefully listened to this, he fucking better be. Um, <laughs> Hell, Hellraiser Inferno is my number seven. Ooh, nice, brutal, uh, nice brutal. arty film, but it's also just a kind of dull film. The thing is, I actually enjoyed this one more re-watching it for this show. And I did see see some extra merit to it that I just hadn't really recognised mm-hmm. before, but it's not as much, uh, it's not as kind of dumb and fun in the same way that uh, the ones directly above it are. So, uh, yeah, like Inferno definitely has some good points to it. And we are getting into the quite good film territory now, I'd say. Um, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't, couldn't uh, recommend it. So yeah, Hellraiser Inferno is uh, my number seven. What about yourself, Alistair? I have to go with Deader because there's no way I can put Inferno at this point. As I quite enjoy that film. Inferno. Oh, I'm thinking where I'll put that one, but I'll deal with that one. Well, we'll we'll burn that bridge when we get to it. (laughs) For me right now, it's, it's Deader. I think that's the order in which I enjoy the Rick Botas. Deader. Hellseeker, last is Hellworld, and Deader, I preferred as a Carrie Horror as well. It's a great performance, and the idea behind it I quite liked. It was a take on Hellraiser that I felt was fresher of the of the three Rick Botas. It was a better idea of a story than we had in Hellseeker or Hellworld. So my highest ranking for the Rick Bota trilogy will be Deader. And uh, what about yourself, Jim? What comes in at, what comes in at your number seven? I would say this and the next two after. I would rate them all equally. So I would just go in terms of how I was engaged by it. So number seven, I'm not apologising to Ross, however, is Inferno. That, that's, that sound in the distance is Ross. Like, he's, he's in a mi- mixture of uh, arousal and anger because he's listening to our <laughs> podcast whilst also watching Dexter. So, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, can we refer to these ones, the not the not so good ones, as uh, this ranking order can be called the order of the gash? And then we come <laughs> to the uh, the order of the good, which is going to be our uh, top six. Um, oh, you've been waiting to say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, I fucking have. Um, my my number six is going to be uh, Hell Hellraiser Six Hellseeker. I know that technically speaking, this isn't as good as number five, but damn it, it is more fun than number five. I enjoy watching this film. Stupid, but it's delightful. You're never bored in the company of part six. Alistair shaking his head in despair right now, <laughs> but he is shaking it in despair. Oh, the suffering! In fact, actually, thanks to Alistair, um, my uh, my D- my DVD collection is complex. I got the first three, and then number six. <laughs> I'd fuck off and pay money for numbers four and five, especially especially when you see the price number four goes for nowadays. Anyway, yes, Hellseeker. Uh, this is my uh, this is my number si- number six. It's not technically a good film. The plot barely makes any sense. There are thirteen <laughs> jump scares um, where he wakes up, uh, but this, and I also completely waste Kirsty. But at the same time, damn it, I enjoy this one. I don't know why. I know you did, <laughs> but I don't know why. Right. What is your number six, then, Alistair? Might be controversial. Bloodline. And, uh, yeah, Jim, what about yourself? Where's uh, next for you? I'm with Alistair on this one. Bloodline. It's decent enough, but too inconsistent and clearly cut to ribbons. So, it's, yeah. It's, it it's entertaining enough, but it's my number six. That noise you just heard there is Alistair realising that uh, not only has Jim put Hellseeker above Inferno, he's now put it above Bloodline. Uh Speaking of which, Bloodline is my number five. Uh, it's, if you were just ranking these films based upon ambition rather than achievement, this would be right there in the top two. But the delivery, uh, the execution, it's its a good idea, but it's not quite done properly. Uh, I really enjoy bits of this. I, I really enjoyed actually reading the original script for it lately. And... Uh, Knowing about the mess you're making of now, I can see why it turned out the way that it did. But yeah, Bloodline, it's uh, it's a good movie. It could have been a great movie. What do you reckon, uh, Jim, we're going to go to yourself. What's your uh, number five? My number five is the first... No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Hellseeker. Uh, out of all of the Bota films and Revelation... It's the only one I f- didn't find myself checking my watch. It, it breezed by. Uh, it was actually quite entertaining, despite how stupid a film it is. And for that, I've got to put it at number five, just how much fun I had of watching it, I guess. Cool. And now we are moving into the top four. I really struggled with ranking the, the top four. Can I say my five? Oh, sorry. Yes, go for Elsa. <laughs> what's, your, what's your five? Inferno. It redefined what a Hellraiser film could be because I didn't always wondered what do you do after four, and it really did change those goalposts. I think obviously, as I say, we had Rick Bota running that idea into the ground, but that was that glimpse of potential of the Hellraiser series. And for me, I think five is the right place to have five. Are all so all of us have the same films in the top four here? I think we're going to slightly 
differ in the order for number, numbers two and three here. Now, with my number four, I really struggled not to make this my number three, but uh, Hell Richard Judgment is my number four. Uh, I just misses a free spot just by a little whisker, uh, but the thing with this, thing with this one is like it's not just the the best one since the last good one. This is actually a really good film in its own right, and uh, it's a shame some of the dross that people might have to wade through to get there unless they just watch the first uh, first four and then just ju- and just jump ship to, to number ten. Um, but a really good. Uh, a, really, a really good sort of revival, a second wind to the series, and uh, yeah, if that's if that's where the canon ends for fourth and new canon, cool. Uh, Hellraiser Judgment. Uh, is that the same for you, both of you guys? No. Oh, Judgment's not number four. Fuck. Hell on Earth. Oh, interesting. I interesting. on the rewatch found it. I mean, I have to say this, I've always loved three, but on the rewatch, what was actually annoying me, and it's never annoyed me before when I watched this film, but I, and I've said this in my review as well, I really felt this should have been Kirsty, because you got the two lead actresses, Terry and Joey, but I really felt this should have been Kirsty and Tiffany's story to finish that arc from two, because this film does lead on from two. But to have those two leads, I would have preferred that, I think. I still think there's a lot to love about three. It's, as everyone says, it's the MTV of the Hellraiser franchise. Um, but it is a bit hokey in parts. Maybe I've just grown older and I don't quite love it the same way as I did when I was younger. But uh, I do enjoy this film, certainly do. But for me, it's uh, this is where I'm placing it. And uh, Jim, is uh, is judgment your number? For, your number four, yeah. Is just it was actually a bit lower until we've just discussed it now. Um, after going over it again with both of you, I realised that it is a lot better than what I initially had it pegged as. So yeah, number four straight up there. I mean, my number three is Hellraiser Part Two, and uh, honestly, in terms of Hellraiser Part Two and Judgment. It's so difficult to to place Hellraiser two above Judgment because I remember my review of Hellraiser two, Hellraiser two being a hell of a lot more negative. But at the same time, with Hellraiser two, there's just something quite classic about the way that it expands upon the original, the way that we see Hell in it, the representation of Hell, having those characters come back. It's a good sequel. It's a solid sequel. And uh, Hell and you know Hellraiser two, while it's not my favorite of the sequels, it's it feels like such a natural follow-up to part one. And uh, and you Mm. look at the production values of it, especially for the time that was made as well. Hellraiser Hellraiser 2 is a real achievement. So yeah, Hellraiser 2 is my number three. Uh, But yourself, Alistair? Judgment. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jim? Yeah, I'll pretty much echo what you said. Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. Uh, It's pretty phenomenal looking at it. Everything that's gone into it is fantastic, but yeah, clearly it doesn't quite cut it above the original or number three for me. Yeah, I mean, it's got, yeah, because it's got quite a few weaknesses for the storytelling that we talked about and a few, just a few bits of plotting that just didn't really work for me, which is why number three is my number two. Uh, so that would make uh, your number two as well, Jim and Alistair. So your number two would therefore be 
Uh, Hellraiser 2, yeah. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy the visuals of that film. It's It, it broadens the scope, broadens the horizon, it, and it so feels like a natural expansion of uh, the original Hellraiser. No, it happens when you assume. Hmm? Makes an ass of you Thank and me. In this case, you are correct, however. <laughs> but uh, number three is a, it's, it's grown up. If you'd have asked me six months ago, number two would have been my second placed one. But it's, it's, every time I've watched it, it's grown on me and I've loved it more and more. And yeah, the last time I saw it, it overtook it for me. And uh, our listeners are sitting there going, oh, but what the fuck is number one? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, the first Hellraiser is very possibly one of the 20 best horror films ever made. And uh, yeah. I, it's all of us is number one for, for a reason. You know, this yeah. is something that introduces, say, uh, it, it was enough there to spawn nine sequels and a remake. And, uh, you know, there's, and a TV show, I believe, coming yeah. up as well. So that. That all of this can come from a film that mostly takes place in a single house. And that's not a weird statement, you know, like this was such neat little world building and the, um, the character that it creates in Pinhead, the focus upon sins and stuff as being what the film's all about. It's brilliant. This is the best film of franchise by a fair margin. And uh, I fully, you know, I, I fully look forward to the the remake. It's going to have a lot to live up to. But if we can get a new continuity, a new timeline, a new franchise, even good, because I want more. Absolutely, here, here, totally agree with that. It's the first, the original. It's an absolute cracking film. There's so much. I mean, it's got a couple nicks. And I think we talked about this, obviously, in our first review. She's having the nightmare, but then we cut to him waking up. That's that's one. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, that's good misdirection. You know, things like that. I kind of love the film for back when cinema wasn't quite as polished and wasn't quite the churning out machine that it is today. Well, and, it's, it's rough and yeah. red in this is part yeah. of its appeal. From like it's it's grimy, grotty look. And the original yeah. Hellraiser has appeal in the bucket load. Absolutely, uh, it's it's one of my all time favorite films, let alone horror films. So. Yeah. Absolute classic. Yeah, and um, you think that 34 years later, you know, we're still, people are still talking about these films. We're still Mm -hmm. Hellraiser films being made. Think about how many characters never get a single sequel. And then you think that, like, Pinhead is still here 34 years later, Mm -hmm. and we're about to get a remake, which will presumably be the most most successful one, at least box office-wise, for decades. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's really really cool. Uh, you know, I hope, I hope fuck it, maybe we'll see another ten of these. Who knows? We're doing the reunion tour of the horror cult films Hellraiser retrospective. <laughs> Need a good twenty odd years before I'm ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will, of course, be bringing the old band back together when we get the uh, give a remake. Uh, was, was, the state of it is, I believe it's I believe it's, it's shot now. It's kind of I think it's going to post production at the moment. Either that or it's still being shot, but we definitely have began the shoot. I would so, agree with that. Of what I've heard, it is they are aiming for a 2022 release. So mm. I think the three of us would have to get back together and uh, definitely we would mm. have to share our thoughts on that one. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, of course, there's going to be plenty of episodes coming up in the new year. We've got lots of different ideas. Let's just see which one of these we can, we uh, want to sit down and do next. Maybe who knows? Maybe soon we'll be doing another big franchise like this. But 
Uh, folks, thank you very much if you've been joining us for the last uh, five episodes now. We have the interview with Gary J. Tunnicliffe, which is going to be available for download. Uh, if it's not up now, it will be in a couple of days' time. It's well worth listening to. We, we, we arranged to speak to Guy for 15 minutes to half an hour, and we ended up chatting for two and a half hours. So <laughs> really interesting guy, a lot, guy, lots to say. The perfect way of rounding this off, because by speaking to him and speaking to Nicholas Vince earlier, we've spoken to someone who worked on every single one of these films. Yeah. So quite authoritative, I'd say. I think it's probably been just about, uh, just about the longest podcast around on the subject of revelations and judgment. So we're going to get ourselves headed. But if you're listening to this pre-Christmas, have yourself a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Otherwise, good to have you back anyway. See you, everybody. See you. Bye. Bye. Views and reviews. Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk. Audio.